On this episode of Newt's World, the debate about climate change many times fails to mention the reasons we use fossil fuels in the first place. Policies like the Green New Deal really remind us that the wealthier countries can adopt green policies as a fashion trend. But in reality, with the growth in global population, particularly in China and India, it's going to require us to think of new ways to approach our energy needs. We cannot just rely on renewable energy. We also need fossil fuels. In a new book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less, Alex Epstein reveals the latest data and new insights that will challenge everything you thought you knew about energy consumption, the environment, and climate, and why oil and natural gas are in fact life-saving. Here to discuss Fossil Future, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Alex Epstein. He is an energy expert, industrial policy pundit, and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress, which offers a positive, pro-human alternative to the green movement. Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Alex, what was it that led you to decide you'd be a voice on this issue and that then led you to write your very first book on the moral case for fossil fuels? So people often think, oh, the fossil fuel industry somehow hunted me down and saw me as a prospect and just gave me this gilded lifestyle, and then that's why I did it. So I didn't even know anyone in the fossil fuel industry when I came up with my ideas. But the advantage I had is that I have a philosophy background. I'm particularly interested in environmental philosophy, and I have a pro-human environmental philosophy that believes that human impact is good and can actually make the world a much better place for human beings. And I noticed that the thinking about fossil fuels was very hostile to all of our human impact and ignored all the ways in which fossil fuels impacted the world for the better. So they, they ignored the benefits and I believe exaggerated the side effects. And so I was really interested in learning about it for myself, what the full benefits and side effects were. And then I became crazy in my previous view, pro fossil fuels. And then I felt like, well, I have to tell everyone this. If, if I think the whole world is wrong, I got to say it. And then the moral case for fossil fuels I happened to write an essay that went viral and a New York agent found me and he said, I think I can get you a book contract for this. And I said, there's no mainstream publisher that'll take this. But then we got Penguin Random House and then wrote six months, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels was done. And part of the reason I did another one is because it was so effective in six months with the little I knew then. And I thought, well, I know 10 times more now, issues more important than ever. So I'm going to spend three years and write the best one imaginable. Well, and we should tell people the very first one, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, was on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes. So for a guy who was from a standing start developing ideas and communicating them, you clearly are having an impact. And I think your new book on fossil future is going to have a profound impact because you correctly recenter us on the morality of leaving behind hundreds of millions of people in lives of misery so we can feel good about ourselves at cocktail parties. Couldn't put it better myself. There's been a warning of the climate catastrophe for several decades. Are the warnings correct? Is the concern as high as these climate change activists say? What's really interesting about the warnings that you see is there is this prediction that we would have not only global warming, which is true directionally, but that this would be a catastrophe and that millions, and sometimes you got up to predictions of a billion people would die. And what's really fascinating, the data set that really changed my thinking on this is that if you look at how many people are dying from climate related disasters, 
the rate of climate-related disaster deaths is actually down 98% in the last century. So we're actually far safer from climate than we used to be. And I attribute a lot of that to fossil fuels. So I don't think of it as we're in a climate crisis. I think of it as we're in a climate renaissance, even though we do impact climate. So as I understand from your studies, since 1850, all of the fossil-fueled civilization increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from just under 0.03%, that's 280 parts per million, to just over 0.04%, that's 420 parts per million. And that's such a small increase in a global system that there's apparently no direct correlation between temperature and carbon dioxide, certainly at that level of change. It's a small percentage of the atmosphere for sure. So the numbers are right. These are not controversial from 0.03% to 0.004%. But you know, the change in it is almost a 50% change. And it's not a trivial change that you would expect to do nothing. And I do think it has had a warming impact. Now, it's true. There's not a perfect correlation between them. I think the most important thing is we've had one degree Celsius warming, about two degrees Fahrenheit in the last 170 years. And that has correlated with an incredible improvement in life, including an incredible improvement in our safety from climate. And what I think people are ignoring are the benefits of fossil fuels. And then they're catastrophizing this warming as some sort of catastrophe when it's not at all. Well, explain the positive side of that. What's the positive effect of the last century of warming? Well, there's the effect of the warming, but then there's the energy that we got with the warming. So I think people should think about fossil fuels the way they think of prescription drugs. You weigh the benefits and you weigh the side effects. And what we see today is people tend to only focus on the side effects, and then they wildly overstate the side effects. And so first, you just have to talk about what are the benefits of fossil fuels, including what they are fundamentally is fossil fuels provide the low-cost, reliable energy that enable us to use machines to be productive and prosperous. So you think about modern agriculture, which is in the news now because fuel prices are up and that affects agriculture. Well, that's because modern agriculture totally depends on fossil fuels. It requires fossil fuel machines to do the agriculture and then fossil fuel-derived fertilizer based on natural gas. And yet we're not taught to think of those benefits. And I think that's why we're in a crisis. But the other thing is with climate, fossil fuels allow us to use all these amazing machines that allow us to master climate and be so safe. So heating machines for when it's cold, cooling machines for when it's hot, irrigation machines for alleviating drought, ships to bring food relief. All these things have taken our naturally dangerous climate and made it unnaturally safe. And fossil fuels should get a lot of the credit. And unfortunately, nobody gives it any credit climate-wise. And in fact, if I understand your studies, a significant part of the world still has no electricity. There are still a large number of people who are using wood and animal dung to cook and heat their homes. So the rise of what we think of as modern civilization hasn't actually reached everybody and if you force a change into much more expensive and exotic green systems, these people are going to continue to suffer for the next 100 years. I mean, 100% right. If you look at just the data, there are only about 1.5 billion people in the world who use what we would consider a remotely acceptable amount of energy. And there, are, just to make it concrete, there are 3 billion people who are using less electricity than one of our refrigerators uses. So that is a real tragedy. Wait, wait, no, let's slow down for a second, because that's such an amazing number. There are 3 billion people whose annual electricity use is less than an American family's refrigerator. Just the refrigerator, exactly. 
That should put some perspective on, you know, I mean, if the green movement actually cared about human beings, wouldn't they have some concern about those three billion people? Well, I think it's a very big if. And one thing that's disturbed me is like, here's a question to ask listeners. What has gotten more concern in the news and, and moral concern in the last 20 years? Has it been 3 billion people with virtually no energy, which is a guaranteed poverty life sentence? Or is it polar bears moving from one piece of ice to another? The polar bears get much more concern and they're actually growing in population. But even the idea that we're disturbing the habitat at all is considered more important than 3 billion people, which is my basic thesis is we're thinking about this issue in an anti-human way. And then I think that's one example of it. I mean, a third of the human population is in two countries, China and India. Yes. And it seems to me both of those governments have made the decision that the prosperity and health of their population is more important than pleasing teenagers from Scandinavia. That's true. And part of the broader data here is that fossil fuels are 80% of the world's energy. This is despite a century of competition, and they're growing fast, particularly, as you indicated, in the parts of the world that most value low-cost, reliable energy. So when people say, oh, yeah, the green stuff is better, well, why is China using coal to produce green energy and yet is 84% fossil fueled themselves? Do they not know the truth about energy, but American academics do. It's like it's clear that for most purposes, fossil fuels are still the cheapest option, which is why they're growing. Well, and in that sense, somebody pointed out that if you accepted fossil fuels as a solution and you, for example, were to replace the Chinese coal burning plants and Indian coal burning plants with natural gas facilities, you actually have the largest plausible decrease in carbon loading of the atmosphere of any strategy you're going to be able to implement in the next 50 years. There's a lot of truth to that, but there's a reason why those places use coal. Coal has a lot of advantages over natural gas globally in terms of price. It's much easier to transport because it's not a gas. Now, you can liquefy gas, but it is true that in terms of what has actually lowered emissions, most so far, it's the proliferation of natural gas. It's particularly ridiculous that we see these global restrictions on natural gas. I mean, basically, when we invented modern fracking, this amazing technology, Europe's first move was basically to ban it in every country. I actually led an effort called Drill Here, Drill Now, Pay Less. I like it. I wrote a book called Gasoline at 250, a gallon, which Obama attacked, which was kind of interesting to have the President of the United States take on a book like that and said it's impossible, it could never occur. And of course, under Trump, it did occur. And fracking, in my mind, fracking was the great breakthrough. That suddenly, I think it expanded, and this is off the top of my head, but I think it expanded North Dakota's oil reserves from 800 million barrels to 24 billion, just the development of the fracking capabilities. You have, for example, the Marcellus Shale in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, and West Virginia. You have about 400 years supply of natural gas. In addition, there's now been the development of modular small nuclear power plants. And if you combine natural gas with small nuclear power plants, you achieve far greater breakthroughs than the green industries will ever develop. And I'd like to get your reaction. Why is it so hard to get folks who are fanatically committed against fossil fuels? Why is it so hard to get them to talk factually about what's going on? 
Well, so I think there aren't that many people who are incredibly fanatical. I mean, my main concern is the general public who've bought into this. And I think the fanatics, if you want to call them that, have put forward two false narratives. So one is that our use of fossil fuels is causing climate catastrophe, whereas I'm saying it impacts climate, but that's different than catastrophe. We're actually safer from climate than ever. And the other thing is that so-called renewables, particularly solar and wind, can rapidly replace fossil fuels. And this has been a really persistent narrative. You've seen corporate America push it, say, hey, we can get to net zero by 2050. You have companies lying, like Apple lying and saying we're 100% renewable. We could talk about the accounting fraud involved in that. And so the public is led to think, hey, fossil fuels have catastrophic side effects and they have no real benefits because they're easy to replace. And so a lot of what I do in Fossil Future is I debunk the hundreds of myths around both of these basic myths. And I think that's really necessary because once the public sees fossil fuels don't have these catastrophic side effects and they have amazing benefits and using them more will benefit billions of people, I think a lot of people will come on board. When companies that are very high tech claim that they're going to somehow be you know, zero impact on the carbon side, isn't that in part because they don't count electricity? They usually only count electricity. So the way it works, you not only have companies claiming they're going to do this in the future, you have them claiming this now. So you look at Apple's website, Google's website, they say they're 100% renewable now, which you would ask, how is that possible? Because there's no grid in the world that's 100%. Leaving aside, Iceland would be the one exception. They use a lot of oil. So Iceland has geothermal, which we could talk about, which you can't do like that in most places. But you take Apple, they're in North Carolina, which has a lot of nuclear and a lot of fossil fuel electricity, and they say they're 100% renewable. So what they do is they just pay the grid to give them credit for everyone else's solar and wind and give everyone else the blame for their coal, natural gas, and nuclear. It's really that simple how that scam works. When the president and others say that the long-term solution is going to be electric cars, and I'm not against electric cars, but it seems to me most people who advocate electric cars as an energy solution have no notion how much you're going to have to invest in electricity production and in a much bigger, more robust grid. And I have a hunch that this summer we're going to see some rolling brownouts because the system simply won't be able to sustain both expanded use of electricity and air conditioning in the middle of July and August. I think it's a huge concern. I'm also not against EVs. I'm for EVs if and when they're cost effective. But if you have more EVs, you have to have a much more robust grid, as you said. And if you look at all the trends, the trends are to incorporate as much unreliable solar and wind as possible and to shut down as many reliable power plants as possible, which is why we're getting national warnings of blackouts this summer. I wrote out this on Twitter at Alex Epstein. I called electricity emergency. I really do think we have an electricity emergency. And yet instead of solving that, we're making it worse and then adding more electric cars, which are giant consumers of electricity. I hadn't thought of it the way you just said, which is very helpful. In fact, I think I'll do a newsletter about it. The concept of an electricity emergency. Have you run across people who are working that issue in a serious way? Because I know that in California and a number of other places, they simply haven't been willing to invest in the kind of robustness they're going to need for the volume of electric demand they're going to have. There's a lot of really bad incentives right now on the grid, unfortunately. So one thing is, in addition to subsidies and mandates, we have this crazy policy where you pay the same price for unreliable electricity as reliable electricity. This occurs in Texas. I live in California. It occurs there. This is a huge problem. And unfortunately, if you look at the plans of the different regional grids, the dominant thing you see when asked, how are you going to get your reliable electricity? They say, we're going to import it. 
but everyone can't import it. So even California a couple of years ago in 2020, we were overly dependent on imports and we got hosed when there was a heat wave and our neighbors needed their reliable electricity. But now everyone has these plans to use more unreliable solar and wind and they wanna hit these targets, they wanna use less fossil fuel. So they just say, we're gonna get it from our neighbors. But obviously not everyone can do that, which is part of why we have this electricity emergency. I just did a newsletter on the Marcella Shale because Governor Wolf in Harrisburg signed an executive order joining Pennsylvania to the Northeastern Greenhouse Gas Consortium. And the way the rest of the Northeast has been dealing with their energy need is they've been importing it from Pennsylvania, which is the fourth largest producer of energy in the United States. And so now Wolf wants to apply to Pennsylvania what hasn't worked in the other states, which means in theory... Pennsylvania will also have to start thinking about importing energy, which will turn out, I think, to be impossible. To me, the inability to walk through a logic chain is one of the most difficult parts of the current system. And I don't know whether it's because the news media can't think beyond 30 and 60 seconds or because somewhere between MTV and TikTok, we got into such short time horizons that it's very hard to get people to think in an extended way. But as you pointed out, and Clist and I did a movie called We Have the Power, and part of the movie was at a huge wind farm in Texas, which, by the way, the last time when it really froze, the wind farm couldn't work, and they had to really deal with it because it couldn't generate the electricity to keep the turbines moving because they all froze. And you just look at this stuff. I mean, I used to teach environmental studies many, many years ago. In fact, I taught in the second Earth Day. But I'm for solar power. I'm for wind power. And for tidal power. But the truth is, it is collectively, it seems to me, a drop in the bucket. And I'd be curious, what percent of the world's energy do you think plausibly is going to come from those kind of green fuels? I think it depends on how much we want to suffer. So right now it's 3% solar and wind, and you have a lot of problems. You know, you have higher adoption rates in Europe, and look what's happening there. So the issue with solar and wind today is they're overwhelmingly parasitical sources of energy. So they don't replace the reliable capacity, they add to it. So if you think about, say, what happened in California, you know, we added all of this solar and wind, but the solar and wind can still go near zero at any time. So we really need 100% of the reliable infrastructure. And then when we tried to shut it down, so we shut down San Onofre nuclear plant, we shut down some natural gas plants, you're playing this game of reliability chicken where you're hoping for enough sun and enough wind, and you hope it doesn't get too hot, you hope it doesn't get too cold. So you can incorporate a lot of solar and wind if you're willing to have 100% backup, but that costs a lot of money. So people try to cut costs, which leads to the reliability issue. So I think the way it should work is you should only be able to sell reliable electricity to the grid. Then if people think they can do efficient things with solar and wind and gas, they can make their own black box that has to deliver reliable electricity. I'm totally in favor of using solar and wind if they're cost effective, but not at the rest of our expense. In places like Germany and Denmark, where they've really invested, they have three to four times the electricity price in the United States. Yes. There's one estimate, I think, from the state government office that signing the executive order, the Governor Wolf may be driving up electricity prices in Pennsylvania by a factor of four, because they're going to now have to pay the kind of prices they're paying in New York and New England. But so far, we've been very fortunate in that our natural gas prices 
and our electricity prices have actually been a competitive advantage against places like Germany and Denmark. Isn't it likely that as we go more and more towards these kind of solutions that prices are going to rise? I mean, prices have been rising, and it's notable that in an era where natural gas prices declined precipitously and natural gas became more dominant on the grid, you didn't see declines in prices in the U.S., which meant that there are other factors driving up prices, namely all of this additional wasteful, unreliable solar and wind. But it was hidden by the natural gas being so cheap. But yeah, now we're seeing it go up in price and we're seeing price hikes in different places. The other thing that's happening is the green movement isn't just mandating solar and wind. It's using that as a pretext for restricting fossil fuels. So look at what Biden did, right? He said, oh, we're going to have this amazing green world. But what did he do in practice? He shut down Keystone Pipeline. He banned drilling. He threatened the industry. He said, I guarantee you we will end fossil fuel. So the real negative impact is making fossil fuels more expensive. So you have to pay for all this wasteful green energy, but then you have to pay much more for the fossil fuels since you've restricted investment, you've restricted production, and you've restricted transportation. And while we're doing this, one of the claims of people who want a green world is that China is rapidly converting to solar and wind, because obviously China and India are the two great users of electricity and for the future. I mean, isn't that just plain not true? Yeah, it's not true. So China's over 80% fossil fuel. I think about 84% last time I looked at the data. There's this question of why does China dominate the solar and wind market? And a lot of that is they use a lot of cheap coal. So their electricity is over 60% coal, which is a competitive advantage. In addition, they use slave labor. In addition, they have low environmental standards. It's this crazy situation where we're told that China's converting to green, whereas actually China's using coal to convert us to green and they control the entire supply chain of green. So, for example, the major producers of solar panels, I think, in a sense, the more we become dependent on China for our electricity production, the less reliable strategically our electricity production will become. Yes. So it's less reliable because the materials themselves, this form of electricity is less reliable. But yeah, China controls particularly the processing of raw materials. So they control a lot of the mining, but it's mainly turning the mined materials into usable components. They can cut that off. If you think Russia has control over Germany, which they do, nothing can compare to what China has. I talk about this in chapter 11 of Fossil Future. This was one of my big motivations to write a new and much better and more current book on fossil fuels, which is I think the US and Europe, I call it unilateral disempowerment. We are disempowering ourselves while China is trying to become the world's leading superpower using fossil fuels. This is really scary and it needs to be revealed. When I was speaker, we sent a congressional delegation to Kyoto, which was the first big gathering on this topic, leading ultimately the Paris Accords. The Kyoto Agreement was so bad that when it was sent to the Senate, not a single senator, not even John Kerry, voted for it because it allowed China and India to continue to dramatically increase the carbon loading of the atmosphere while forcing the United States basically into a set of rules that were worse than either Europe or China and India. And I think you still see that because in the whole process with the Paris Accord, we have this nice, convenient delay for India and China, which allows them to continue to have a less and less expensive energy economy while the rest of us are ramping up our cost. I mean, is that a reasonably accurate understanding? 
It is, and I think it's an important aspect. The way I think of it is, I think this is an immoral agreement for everyone, really. I don't think you can talk about rapidly eliminating CO2 emissions when fossil fuels are totally crucial and where the energy they provide is needed by billions more people. So congratulations to China and India for not accepting these ridiculous restrictions. And shame on the US for signing a treaty and not calling a treaty and not putting it in front of the Senate. This was ridiculous that Obama did this and that Biden renewed it. This is, if anything is a treaty, something that totally transforms our economy for the worse needs to be ratified by the Senate. One of the things which is puzzling about all this is that it seems to me nuclear power is the most promising of the so-called green technologies, if by green you mean not putting carbon into the atmosphere. And with the development of the new, very safe, small modular nuclear systems, why is it so hard to get people who claim to be concerned about carbon to not understand that a very large part of our future has to involve nuclear power? I regard the concern with carbon as phony. And I think the evidence is in part the hostility toward nuclear, but also the hostility toward hydro and the hostility toward mining, which is totally crucial for solar and wind, which require much more mining than everything else for a whole bunch of reasons. And so I think of it as the real driving force in our energy thinking is unfortunately the idea that human impact on nature is evil and should be stopped. And so I regard the opposition to CO2 as just a subset of the opposition to all human impact. And so with nuclear, what you see is the advocates, the leaders, what they think is they think it's wrong for us to split the atom. That's changing nature in a new way. And they think it's wrong for us to create waste, not because it's a big danger, but because it's going to last a long time. And they think that human beings creating something that lasts a long time is immoral. So I do think of this as a primitive anti-human religion that's driving a lot of this stuff. So I remember when I was in graduate school, there was a faction that believed in Gaia as the Earth Mother. There you go. And that we couldn't do anything to offend Gaia. But isn't that the modern climate catastrophe movement? It puts the climate as a friendly force, even though climate is one of the leading killers in human history. And then it says, you know, we break the climate. I call this the delicate nurture assumption, you know, that nature exists in a delicate nurturing balance and human impact can only ruin it. This is just a false primitive belief that modern humans have no business believing but it shapes climate. We think all we can do with climate is ruin something perfect versus what we actually do is we master it and we're far better off climate-wise than we've ever been. I'm just finishing a terrific book on the rise of mammals in the age of mammals. And it goes through a series of catastrophic events, one of which is very famous is the asteroid that hit around the Yucatan Peninsula and almost certainly wiped out the dinosaurs. But there have been a whole series of catastrophic events that do involve climate change, but they're mostly caused by gigantic volcanoes, which operate for hundreds and hundreds of years and which put, for example, sulfuric acid into the atmosphere so it kills things in the ocean. And you look at those things and you think, now that's climate change. It really changes profoundly the whole planet. Nothing we're doing is comparable to any of those events. And yet, if you listen to the alarmists, they pretend this is a new and stunningly different kind of future. Well, in particular, what's notable, I think I point this out in chapter nine, is if you look at extinction events, like a lot of it involves blocking out light, being cold, things like that. What do we do with CO2 emissions is they make the earth warmer and greener. 
That is does not cause mass extinction. And they make it particularly warmer. This is not known, but I talk about it in chapter nine. This is mainstream science. They make it warmer in colder regions. And we still have far more people dying of cold than of heat. So again, I think the issue is people are taught that human impact is bad. It's immoral and it's going to lead nature to destroy us. My background is philosophy. This is just a false anti-human environmental philosophy that human impact is evil and inevitably self-destructive, yet it's misshaping our whole thinking about energy. I mean, if you started with the concept, I'm afraid this summer we're going to see very substantial human pain as the side effects of the Russian-Ukrainian war lead to both a collapse in terms of wheat exports and a collapse in terms of fertilizer exports. When Klitschko was the ambassador of the Vatican, we were very close to the people who run the World Food Organization. They think you could easily see somewhere between 10 and 200 million people die this year, that it could be a catastrophe on a scale that dwarfs World War I or World War II. And it's as though the world's sleepwalking because the poorest of the poor just don't get covered. It's astonishing. And so we talk about the concerns of the richest of the rich. And we think that's the focus of morality. This point I keep making about we're ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. So one example I talk about in chapter one that really bothers me is that if you look at one of our leading experts on this issue, Michael Mann, a climate scientist and activist, he has a whole book on fossil fuels and climate. It's called The Madhouse Effect. And he talks about agriculture, but he only talks about negative side effects of, of warming on agriculture, but he doesn't talk about the benefits of fossil fuels to agriculture even though modern agriculture totally depends on fossil fuel machinery and fossil fuel fertilizer. And because people like Michael Mann are not telling us about the benefits, we don't think about them and we make these terrible decisions. And as you're saying, the biggest victims are the poorest people who can't afford food and can't get it when there's a fertilizer crisis. And so we really need a new set of leaders who are thinking about what I call the full context, who are looking at the benefits and side effects and not just saying, oh, let's look at the negatives and ultimately, I think they're doing that because they don't really value human life. They think human life is bad because it impacts nature and they want to see less of it. I'm often reminded of Tom Wolfe's extraordinary series of essays that included radical chic and the idea of all these extraordinarily wealthy New Yorkers who got together in a pious interest in the poor while being served by immigrants who made up the staff for the cocktail party. And they had no notion of people outside their own class. The Ivy League morality extends to you as long as you also went to the Ivy League, but then you have to worry less and less as they get further away from you. Meanwhile, you have in China and India, governments which are not trapped into this bizarre model. And as I understand it, in both China and India, the use of coal and oil has actually increased by at least 500%. Yeah, over the last four or five decades, definitely. The anti-fossil fuel movement is not really concerned with energy. Again, they're hostile to nuclear, they're hostile to hydro, they're hostile to mining. It's really about eliminating human impact on Earth. There's just a pretense that they care about CO2 because that's something that scares people. And there's a pretense that, hey, they really want a lot of energy from solar and wind because that will inspire people and make it think it's okay for us to get rid of fossil fuels. But in reality, neither of these things hold water, and it's really just an anti-energy movement. So if you could wave a magic wand, what should the United States climate policy look like? 
I think our energy policy, I talk about this in chapter 10, which is about energy freedom. I think it should be a pure energy freedom policy. I don't think you need a separate climate policy. So if you liberate all forms of energy, including what I call decriminalizing nuclear, which is a big part of what I think the platform should be, if you decriminalize nuclear, you liberate its potential and it will eventually become cost competitive and I think ultimately cost superior to fossil fuels. You'll also liberate natural gas, which we're really good at producing. We'll produce more of that for ourselves in the world. So those will drive down what you can call emissions intensity. Then we'll have a lot more energy, we'll be prosperous, we'll export things. But I don't think the world should be focused on reducing CO2 emissions right now. I don't think that's moral given the alternatives. I think we need to be focused on expanding human empowerment to billions of people. And then the way you deal with emissions long-term insofar as you want to, is you liberate the most cost-effective alternatives. That's also the only practical thing. China and India, are they going to use expensive alternatives? Absolutely not. So the only way to get everyone using lower carbon energy is to innovate to the point where it's cost-effective at scale. Well, I wish every policymaker would read your new book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. And I really do think, as your earlier book was entitled, there is a moral case for fossil fuels. And the moral case starts with the number of poor people around the planet whose lives are going to be somewhere between hurt and destroyed if we follow an anti-energy policy. So I think what you're doing, Alex, is very important and is a major contribution to reestablishing a serious dialogue about our obligation to people everywhere and our obligation to creating a morally sound energy policy. Thanks so much, Newt. Thank you to my guest, Alex Epstein. You can get a link to buy his book, Fossil Future, on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.